The following is brought to you by the Starfleet Podcast Network, SPN, The Spin. No one really knows what a princess person looks like. <laughs> I do. I think I can give you a pretty good approximation. Think? I was going to say probably my ex-wife, but no. oh. I shouldn't say that just in case she watches this. Uh, well, I've got two of them. So plausible deniability, they won't know which one I'm talking about. So there you go. This is Big J, Beyond Trek Podcast. I've got a special guest here with us today, Doug Drexler. And Doug, you have a long list of accomplishments and awards. And I want to read a couple off here for you guys. So you're an Oscar-winning visual effects artist, designer, sculptor, illustrator, and a makeup artist who's collaborated with such talents as Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, James Caan, Meryl Streep, and Warren Beatty. And speaking of Warren Beatty, it was Dick Tracy was the movie that you got the Oscar for, for the, uh, yep. uh, for the, for the makeup effects. And in that movie, that was amazing. So you came up with all of that. Yeah. I mean, well, it was all based on Chester Gould's designs, you know, that we spun off of and, uh, and you couldn't miss with, with Dick Tracy because it was known for faces. I'd like to talk about Next Generation a little bit. And the question that I've always wondered with the makeup design is one of the awards that you got, it was an Emmy for uh, Inner Light for aging Patrick yeah, Stewart. Yeah, actually win. We were nominated. You're nominated. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, nominated. Yeah. Uh, how, di- how difficult is it? What do you use as a basis to s- try to estimate what would you look like if you were 40, 50 years older? Well, first I should say that I put the makeup on, Patrick. Mm-hmm. It was sculpted and designed by Mike Westmore. It's his makeup. Um, I could tell you what I would do if I was sculpting it. And, uh, I mean, first of all, all makeup artists have a morgue of pictures. You used to have to have pictures in a filing cabinet. <laughs> yeah, back in the <laughs> you day. On the internet, you get so many pictures of old people. You know, and just collect the. If you're working with a director or producer or something, you show them examples of real old people and say, yeah. "Is is this where, where we're looking to go with it?" Then once you have that, you could whittle down your archive of pictures and pin them up on the wall while you're sculpting, and you know, off to the races. Um, I guess it's probably different for everybody. Um, I was lucky to be, uh, to work with Dick Smith on The Hunger and got to watch him sculpt all these amazing makeups, uh, where David Bowie ages, uh, to like 140 years old. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I think old age is really the most amazing. Uh, I mean, when I was a kid and I saw The Exorcist, I was blown away by the Linda Blair possession makeup. That was some good makeup. That's an yeah. amazing makeup. People are still scared of it. And um, uh, Max von Sydow, who played Father Marin, supposed to be mm-hmm. 86 years old. Well, I saw von Sydow in his next movie, and he was like 40. And I'm like, what? How could this be? 
He was 86 in the last movie. And look, no one really knows what a possessed person looks like. <laughs> I do. I think I can give you a pretty <laughs> good approximation. <laughs> I was going to say probably my ex-wife, but oh. I shouldn't say that just in case she watches this. Uh, <laughs> well, I've got two of them. So plausible deniability. They won't know which one I'm talking about. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> so I was so blown away by that makeup. That's when I really became a Dick Smith devotee. <laughs> and so the makeup just became became your thing. Well, I mean, unlike most makeup artists, I didn't actually grow up wanting to be a makeup artist. Mm -hmm. I knew all about makeup artists, you know, because I, you know, read like Forrest Ackerman's Monster magazines and stuff like that. But um, uh, I really always saw myself as someone who draws, maybe a comic book artist. I'm glad I didn't do that because that's a horrible life. <laughs> that's got to be a very difficult life. It is really difficult to make ends meet. I mean, I've known guys who are considered heroes, you know, cult heroes, and they were just living from paycheck to paycheck practically. Yeah. You know, you've got to be a Jack Kirby and doing like six books a month. To really live well. That's a lot. That, that's Harvey can do it. <laughs> how? That that's just that's unbelievable. So you oh, couldn't do six books a month? Me? <laughs> right. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe one every every few months. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And that's something I want to do is do a graphic novel. What would be your first graphic novel? would you do Star Trek? Would it be something different, something new? Yeah, I don't, and I don't even know that it would be science fiction. Okay. I've had a lot of science fiction in my life. Um, You're probably burned out in science fiction by this point. I'm not burned out, but it's just that we're too. Science fiction always appealed to me as a kid because nobody liked it but me. <laughs> and now everyone likes it. It was a secret and club at one point. It was a secret club. That's exactly right. Yeah, it was a private club. And uh, I'm glad it's made, you know, but when I was a kid, you know, they would chase you with fire and pitchforks if you read comic books and science fiction. <laughs> You're right. Well, it, it wasn't cool yet. No. No, that you were brain damaged. You, you were uh, emotionally arrested. Yes. Your head out of the clouds. Well, you know, it's just that my generation's parents were the World War II generation who grew up during a depression and they knew nothing but, you know, reality. Right. Yeah. There was no time to yeah, imagine so I don't blame them, you know, for thinking that because I, you know, uh, love, love a show with a guy with pointed ears and a ray gun. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, my father told me, he said, if, and actually he did like Star Trek. He mm -hmm. said, if you would have as much time in your schoolwork as you put into that television show, you'd be okay. <laughs> but it's different because with Star Trek, it's something that gives you an escape. Like you can, it takes you out of, it shows you what can be a possible future, something that could happen. But yeah, I don't think that most adults at the time thought that. No. You know, um, it was just silly. Just fun to watch. It was. Well, I mean, maybe you should spend your time doing your homework or, or uh, learning how to, uh, you know, take a motor apart in a car. Take you know, a motor apart. Some some actual trade skill, something useful, right? Well, 
well, and most of the stuff, to be fair, you know, Lost in Space was pretty silly. I yeah. love it. I'm nostalgic about it. I knew it was dopey when I was a kid. But I like the characters and I like the design work in it, you know. Um, and so most people were familiar with that. And you got also have to remember that, uh, like, comic books were um, pursued in the 50s as being, uh, late 50s as being communist. Oh. During the communist witch hunts, you know. I forgot so, about that. Yeah, they said those things make you kill people and right a comic book so this this whole thing about blaming books and video games and everything else for all of our problems started back then that somehow comic books encouraged you to oh yeah no doubt which is i think absolutely ridiculous well of course it is but you know the world that they grew up in is a totally different one you know and very different than what we've got and they had respectable politicians up there saying that comic books were communist. Why would they lie? You know, exactly. Uh, uh, so my mother didn't want me having comic books. Uh, and I was very in the, like the late, late fifties, like 59, 60, 61, 62, where Stan Lee was just cutting his teeth at Marvel. I was really, you know, a Marvel maniac. As a kid, I, and I was there for the birth of all those books, Fantastic Four, number one, Spider Man, Iron Man, all that stuff. I was go, I was paying my hard earned ten cents. Yeah, <laughs> and I couldn't wait. And and really, they that's because of Stan. I mean, yeah, Kirby's art is really wonderful, but Stan had a sizzle. You know. Yeah. It was exciting, and he felt you felt like he was your friend, and you know. Um, anyway, how am I getting on to that? We're talking Marvel now. <laughs> That's okay. That is one of the joys of podcasting and with, with Beyond Trek podcasts, as we like to say, we like to go beyond the shows and movies and explore other things that uh, not just centric on Star Trek, but some of the other hobbies, things, endeavors that you like to do and getting off track. I don't, that's like a skill for me. I don't know how <laughs> I do it, but I can be out in the weeds somewhere in the cornfield, totally lost and not know how I arrived there. That's just, it's just one of those. You abducted, I, it's, you abduction? It probably, probably, I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out that I was abducted because yeah, I get called strange and weird sometimes, but, um, the communist thing with comic books, I'm surprised because at that point then you had Superman was was huge. Uh and Batman. Yeah, Superman, yeah, Batman. Um I just well, I can't you know, those were good old fashioned American comics, Superman and Batman. Those were I okay. Was a big Superman and Batman fan, basically. But there were uh a lot of horror magazines being done at the time. EC Comics was doing Tales of the Crypt and Vault of Horror. Uh, and other comic companies were following suit. And um, and some of the stuff EC did, if you, if you didn't read it and see how clever the stories were, they would look really gory and, and devastatingly horrible. Uh, wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I remember one cover was just like a hand down in the frame holding a girl's head with blood. 
Oh, <laughs> and when was now, this? This was like uh, 55, 56. And you, you didn't see a whole lot of, of things like that. So, Well, wow. there was plenty of it in comics. In the comics? In the comics, because Tales from Krypton, Vault of Horror, yeah. you know, doing really well. And so other people were imitating it. And I wasn't reading comics at, yet. You know, I was born 53. Um, but later on, you know, uh, the last EC comic is Mad Magazine. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's a magazine because Bill Gaines, after the witch hunts, the comic industry uh, set up a self-censoring um, bureau called a comic code right kind of like the mpaa for comics yeah, they tried he tried working and he couldn't do it and so he burned all the comics and he took mad and turned it into a magazine where you didn't need that you'll also notice that probably it wasn't until gain sold the company and died uh that mad ever had an advertisement in it Games would not have advertisements. Oh, is that so? Yeah. Because okay. um, he didn't want anyone telling him how to run his magazine. And so <laughs> MAD during its heyday was purely subscription and newsstand sales. I used to love looking at MAD magazine. That was one of my favorites. And I think I haven't seen it in a while. And I believe it's uh, just direct sales now. You don't see it like out on. I, I think so. I mean, from what I, I could... It still looks pretty good from what I see, but it's definitely a different, you know, it's kind of like Star Trek in a way where so many people are involved with it now. In the, in the heyday of Star Trek, there was a small group of people who ran Star Trek. And that's the way Mad was while Bill Gaines was alive. There was a core team, not a bunch of different, you know, uh, uh, it's run by a conglomerate. They have lots of fantastic work, it looks like, but it just has a different tone that remind that. It's still mad, but so back in back in that time when you were doing the work on Next Gen, you just said that there there are a lot more people in, involved now. Yeah, was it a it was a smaller smaller crowd, smaller production? Which I imagine so. Yes. Now, did you did you do any of the in charge I, of any of the makeup artists? Uh, I. If you look at the new shows, you'll see like seven or eight producers listed. Oh, yeah. Everyone's a producer now. So how many did you see on Next Gen or, you know, the original series or just a couple? Yep. So uh, it was mostly it was up to a smaller group of people who mostly knew each other. I think that Star Trek has gotten there's so many productions of Star Trek going on. Yeah. But there's no really great continuity between them. No. You know, Enterprise can look different in another show. Uh, which I, it's a multiverse now, you know, it, it has to be. That's why things don't perfectly line up. I appreciate Star Trek. I like Star Trek that has continuity. That's why I really liked uh, Picard in season three. I thought it was awesome. It was great. It was like a 10 hour movie. It yeah, was spectacular. It was incredible. And it totally connected to the earlier show, you know, and Terry and Dave Blast, they were careful to keep what had come 
before lined up, which is part of the reason why they had, you know, the Okudas and me and John Eves and because we know that stuff inside and out. Yeah. Who would be, in your opinion, who was or what was the most difficult makeup job that you've had to do in Star Trek and why? (laughs) That's another story. (laughs) (laughs) Mike Westmore has it in his book, Makeup Man. Uh, 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 Lal. Lal? The offspring. Um, They wanted to have Lal look like kind of like an Oscar in a way, you know, no features yet. Right. It's gold. And um, Mike sculpted the face and the chest piece. And they he, they were talking about making like a pair of pants, foam latex pants that you put and it would go up around your butt. And mm-hmm. I just thought that that would, it would fatten the whole area out and it would, it would look like a pair of pants. I thought it would, no matter how, if you painted it and blended it over, it would still. And I, I said, Mike, I think we should do almost a G-string for him, where it's a pouch that covers his naughty bits and goes <laughs> on between his butt cheeks and fills that in. <laughs> yep. And that's all it really is. All the musculature of his butt and everything and his hips, it's all still there. And Mike says, well, since you feel so strong, you do it. <laughs> it's your idea. You do it. Yeah. So, so, and it worked out really well. Uh, the thing was that uh, they, at the time, they didn't have that many, they couldn't afford that many makeup artists. I basically put the makeup on myself from head to toe by myself. Oh, that, and I've, I've seen that. That does not look like. Oh, it was a long took job. forever. I think I probably got started at two in the morning. Wow. It probably took me like five hours to get it on. Wow. Started to take five hours. Yeah. And um, I remember (laughs) Mike had gotten this uh, makeup. I won't say what lab it was from. Um, Mike says, they say if once you're ready to take it off, It'll just come right off if you use isopropyl mirror state or some removal. I thought it'll come right off. Well, wait, they didn't say that. They said if if I just took them for soap and water, it would just come right off. And I'm thinking to myself, I put on a bunch of makeup, something, and what the hell stays on all day and then just washes off with water and soap? This is I, I'm worried already. And uh, so after, first of all, Leonard Crowfoot, who was Lal, yeah. he was an angel one. And he's a slight yep. guy with a dancer's body, you know. Yep. And a real trooper who'll do anything. And um, I told him, I said, you know, once this goes on, there's no peeing or pooping. Get it all out of your system now. And they're probably going to have you in at two in the morning, and you may not get out till two in the morning. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's. Yeah. And so Leonard stopped eating and drinking like a day or so before. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Yeah. He had to. How did he put it in? Forget it. Yeah. But I mean, I just, and he did that. He he was able to. He did it. He did it. So uh, when it was time to take the makeup off, just as I thought, this stuff was not coming off. Not coming off. 
even with remover, I'm all by myself. <laughs> and you can't it's get them like, out of it. It's like two in the morning. And um, I called Mike and I said, Mike, can you get somebody to open the studio gym so I could take them in the shower with hot steamy water and a brush? Yeah. Is what I did. It was like, I've never taken a shower with man before until that night. And, <laughs> and he had I your was, scrub brush. I had a scrub brush. I felt like I was at the circus scrubbing an elephant or something. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the next night, uh, Mike Westmore stayed to help me get him out of makeup. So I wasn't by myself. And it's funny, in his book, he remembers being in at the front of Leonard. And I was out in the back. And we start at the top and work our way down. I remember being in the front of Leonard and Mike around the other way. Yeah. So we came down, came down, came down. Just as they get right about junk level, <laughs> I get the the pouch off and his waterworks drop out right in front of my face. <laughs> and I'm looking at this thing right in front of me and I look past it through Leonard's legs. And I see Mike Westmore like this. <laughs> I said, hey, Mike. I never thought I'd have a view of you like this. And we both just like busted up. <laughs> so funny. I would love to see that behind the scenes picture. It was, I, you know, the problem was in those days, there weren't phones that you had in your pocket yet. And right. so you didn't take pictures. You know, it had to be a camera camera and they were bulky and you couldn't really carry them around when you were, uh, you know, we're so lucky now. The cell phones are so awesome. You pull that thing out and in a minute you could be taking you know, high resolution images and video and wow, it's incredible, really incredible. But back then it was difficult to, there's so many great moments that I missed because we just didn't have, plus it was also film was expensive. You didn't know what you were getting when you took a shot. It wasn't until you had them. You had to take them, the roll of film, and take them and have them developed. And then you'd see what – now you can edit as you're going. And now, yeah, that that was the thing. And, wow, that really takes me back. You had to – and the kids these days don't know what this was like, taking your roll of film to get it developed and not knowing what was going to show up, thinking that well, you had all these great shots. You used to do it through the mail or you would go to like a department store yep, and drop it off. And it would take a week to two weeks to get it back. And then eventually the one hour photo opened, which was like revolutionary one hour. Oh my God. I mean, up until then you had, I mean, look what the phone has done to the Polaroid camera. It's only obliterated it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's gone. Yeah. I used to love those cameras. At, at least then you could, you could get a picture right away. And yeah, remember the swinger? Meet the swinger. <laughs> no, I don't remember that one. More than a camera. It's almost alive. It's only $19 and 95. Swing it up. Yeah, yeah. It says yes. Yeah, yeah. Take the <laughs> shot. Yeah, yeah. Zip it off. I mean, advertising works. It does. I remember that from a kid. And you take your uh, the picture after it came out of the pol Polaroid and shake it, it yeah. to, to get it to show up faster. So oh, yeah, you shake it. Yeah, yeah. What was what's your what was your favorite show or movie to do makeup on? The one that you just if you could do it again, 
you would do it? Well, Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy's the one? Yeah. I mean, when I, after we finished that one, I, I did go to Star Trek and do makeup for like three years. But I was pretty much at the end of my makeup career, you know. I knew I wanted to do other stuff at that point. Uh, and, uh, you know, I got to know Michael Kuda. And that's how I ended up in the art department. But uh, the thing about being on a show like that, where right now all the shows have all different crews, they're far away from each other. Some are in Toronto and so, you know, in, in that era from TNG up until Enterprise, everybody was within a few blocks of each other. Okay. And you were dropping in on each other constantly all the time. Everybody, so, everybody. So the, the shows, they have overlap of the same people or you were just close by to be able to collaborate? Uh, there was an overlap. I mean, Michael Kuda was a scenic art supervisor on Voyager and Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Uh, it was a much smaller group. It's only when something becomes monstrously popular that everybody wants to get involved. <laughs> they all run towards the... Uh, they all grab their marshmallows and their sticks and run to the fire. And they're so greedy. They put it out, put the fire out. It reminds but, me of the saying that kind of applies is uh, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan. Yep. Oh, so true. Especially in this business. Yeah. And I talked to actually did an interview with Rick Sternbach and talked about just basically creating the look of the 24th century with his work and with, with the Akutas, do you feel that your work has had the same kind of impact in regards to this is my work is so established in Canon that it is widely known. Uh, I am pretty widely known in the fan community. Um, I mean, I'm a Rick Sternbach fan, so I, I don't think I compare to Rick. And I'm a Michael Kuda fan, don't think I compare to Mike, you know. But uh, I have had incredible opportunities to be in more departments than anybody on the show. I've been a graphic artist, illustrator, uh, visual effects. Um, I, yeah, that, I my fingerprints are over... Uh, I love Mike and Rick to death, but my fingerprints are over a wider, you know, piece of Star Trek real estate. I, I overlap on so many departments. You know? Right. That um, had to be tough to keep them all straight, all the different departments that you did. Because to me, it sounds like they could be very different specialties. I mean, did, did all of them, I guess, how am I trying to word it? It, it would sound like to me that they would be so different that one person couldn't do multiple departments like that. So was that a challenge for you or did it just come natural? It was, it was, it was only a challenge in that once you move to a different department, it's a different uh, ecosystem. Because you've all been on the shelf for so long, you all mostly know each other already. Yeah. You know, so if I'm, if we're helping visual effects and we help visual effects, not just computer generated like, uh, like an Eden and uh, foundation imaging, but we were involved with visual effects when they were still using physical models, 
you know, I mean, Gary Hutzel would call me and Mike down to add weathering to the K7 space station with pencils, you know. Um, so moving to other departments on Star Trek never was scary. I mean, I want, I know I had to prove myself. I'll have to prove myself in some ways, but I already know that they know I'm a proven commodity. They've worked with me before, you know, I know Dan Curry really well and Ron Moore and uh, visual effects Ron and uh, David Stipes and Dave Takamura. And I ended up, you know, going with Gary Hutzel to Battlestar Galactica, you know. That was a great show. Yeah, incredible show, a milestone. I think that more Star Trek fans would like it. I, I'm amazed at how many have never watched it because they have a loyalty to Star Trek. Well, but that to me, that doesn't make sense because you've got a, a Star Trek alumni on there. Ronald D. Moore created that created the show Battlestar Galactica. Oh, yeah. Gary was there and I was there. And yeah, but um, the thing about Battlestar Galactica is that Star Trek is always up. Yeah. By the way. Very few shows are like private little war ends on a down note from the original series, but that's probably the only one. Oh, actually Harlan out city edge of forever. does kind of end on a down note where Kirk says, let's get the hell out of here. Maybe the only two. Uh, but Battlestar Galactica, <clears throat> we always said no one has a good day on the Battlestar Galactica. No, no, not, apparently not. Every day is a bad day. <laughs> there are moments, though, that are so mind-blowing as far as performance and emotions. I mean, there's the one where um, Adama finds out that Kara Starbuck graduated his son before he was ready, and he ended up getting killed. Right, because of their personal relationship that the two of them had. So, yeah, Kara's pretty much responsible yeah. for Adama's son's says, death. Leave my cabin now while you still can. Yep. She goes out on a mission and gets in a dogfight with a uh, Cylon raider. And they I guess they collide with each other and go spinning into the planet. And she parachutes out and she finds the raider damaged on the ground it's kind of unconscious and she cuts a hole in it and crawls inside yeah why is it back meanwhile everyone thinks she's dead adam is beside himself you know uh and she figures out how to pull on this organ to make the engines go <laughs> because those things were like bioengineered there were yeah. Uh, there were organic amazing. parts to it. She flies back to the fleet and they see a Cylon Raider coming and Starbuck, uh, 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 Apollo goes out, you know, to challenge it. And yeah. he sees it on the bottom, Starbuck, <laughs> and she's back, you know, and he's, he's whooping his head off. And there's a scene where she's in the hospital bed and Edward James almost comes in. And kisses her on the forehead. And I broke down and cried at that. It was so emotionally moving because those actors are, holy crap. They had great actors on that show. Amazing. Amazing actors. They're all just amazing. Uh, yeah, so BSG was big for me. Hey, look, if Star Trek wasn't canceled, I wouldn't have ended up on BSG. 
And if I hadn't ended up on BSG, I wouldn't, I have two Emmys because of BSG and a bunch of nominations. That never would have happened because in visual effects, you bring everybody, the whole department. In art department, they only bring the production designer, the art director, and the set decorator. Only people who go. Visual effects, you could bring 12 people. Yeah. You know, so as long as I was in the art department, there was never any chance of an Emmy, you know. So you got into a department that would give you a better chance of yeah. having your work shine and getting an award like that. Well, that's one of the things Gary was luring me. <laughs> <laughs> I had some certificates that were given to me while I was in the art department from visual effects saying that I was a participant in the work that was done that won the award. And when I, Gary wanted to know everything that I had to sell me to the producers on BSG. And I listed those and he goes, what the hell are these? <laughs> I says, come here and we'll get you some real Emmys. <laughs> and he did. And he did. I think that Battlestar Galactica is what Star Trek Voyager should have been. Should have been more of a, I think Voyager just, it dropped its premise too soon. It was supposed to be this ship kind of a lost in space sort of thing uh, on its own to struggle for resources, survival, everything else. But it just became another one of those episode of the week, the villain of the week sort of uh, do the they reset the button. the side of the galaxy thinking it would make it different only to find out everything's exactly the same. <laughs> and Enterprise was had the same kind of issues. It was supposed to be Listen, we had Klingons and Ferengis within the first few episodes. Yep. If I was running the circus, we wouldn't even see an alien until season three. You know? Really? You, That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, the Vulcans didn't hang around. They left it. And in their wisdom said, when you are ready, you will find us. And left Instead of being the relatives who wouldn't leave. <laughs> the in-laws you can't get rid of. Yeah, exactly. I, I found that so annoying. Uh, so I think no aliens. We have colonies and we're learning how to travel in space. And all of a sudden colonies are being butchered by unknown alien race. No trace of who they are. You know, th those are Klingons. We don't know it yet. We're not going to know it for a while. You know? Um, That's very interesting show idea. Wow. Yeah. So what happened was that Enterprise became just another Star Trek show within a few episodes. You're right. It did. It tried to, as a as a prequel, it tried to bring in and introduce things that we're familiar with sooner than really they they should have been. Uh, yeah. Do you watch Smallville? Have you ever watched Smallville? Um, or no. Fan of that? Okay. Um, it's basically Smallville is Clark Kent in his younger years as he's growing, learning to deal with his powers, everything else. Well, I think one of the handicaps of that show is that it started bringing in and introducing things from the Superman lore that was sooner really than it should have been. Same thing happened with this uh, prequel series involving Batman. It's called Gotham. You start getting in these, these characters that became who they were because of Batman, not preceding him. And so well, I think that, right? what's that? 
kind of lazy. It is lazy. It's it's okay. Let's let's have the the best of whatever we want. Let's have our cake and eat it too. We're going to be this new show that takes place before Kirk and Spock. Yet we want to have those familiar elements. We want to have the Klingons, the Vulcans, the Andorians, and bring in the Ferengi. But at the end of the episode, we have to make sure that they don't know that they were Ferengi. Same with the Borg. We have to tie that into where they don't know that the Borg or Borg are called Borg. It's just, it was, they played around too much with. We even had Borg in, on Enterprise, if I remember. Didn't we? Yeah. The there was, there was an episode with, uh, with the Borg, Enterprise episode with the Borg, which it. It started getting interesting in the final season. Yes. When Dakota was running things. Yeah. You know, so more, uh, I, I found the show, you know, Manny wrote one of my all time favorite episodes. Um, what was it called? Uh, similitude. Similitude. Where uh, Trip is hurt. And yes, and he got he got got himself cloned. Hux grows a clone. Mm-hmm. Mine organs from him to save Trip. Yeah. And they don't keep this guy in a test tube growing. He he's out as a child and he grows up very fast. And becomes an adult and becomes close to T'Pol. Yep. Now he has to die. It's such a disturbing and amazing episode. It's I think it's maybe one of the best Enterprise episodes. It was a good one, but you're right. I'm I'm controversial. I like season three. And season three tends to be the one that I guess gets the most heat. I don't season know why. The Temporal Cold War? Was that season three? Uh season three was the Zendi arc. Where they they had to uh, uh, find go into the expanse, find the Zindi, stop them from building the super weapon that they were creating to destroy Earth. Right, and that was the the season arc, which I thought was great. You know, I I like that. Uh, yeah, well, you know what what was disappointing to me was that I'm not, and the stories were fine. I mean, and, and I had some issues here and there, but who the hell am I? Um. I, it, they did a war arc on DS9 that was really great. Yep. But I felt like doing a war arc on Enterprise was desperation, you know, uh, because writing war stories is probably the easiest place for them to go, you know. It is. Bad it's guys the tree that keeps giving the fruit. Yeah, you know. I mean, the original series only had battles once in a, in a blue moon. Any warlike situations, Balance of Terror, you know, uh, Journey to Babel, um, you know, stuff like that. What do you want? You want to come down? I want to see that parrot again. Yeah, you come here. <laughs> I'm sure he's got something to say about all this. Oh, it's awesome. Now, see, look at that that hook. I would not oh, want yeah. to have that thing close to me because if he nips, that's going to hurt like hell. Oh, and I've been hurt. Ow. Uh, because if the safeties come off, like if he freaks out, he goes feral, the beak will just go right through your skin like butter. Oh. I never really, 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 really got bit till he was about 18. Wow. Hormonal surge. And wow. He was going after me. Yeah, I got scratched up a lot by cats, and I tell you what, that's that doesn't feel but good either. When they lose it, oh my god, 
Cats go crazy. Yes, <laughs> I would not. I wouldn't mess with a cat. I they're they're just they're a special kind of possessed. Never tell anyone to get a parrot. No <laughs> I never get one. They will take over. Oh, see that he's regurgitating for me. Yeah, <laughs> making snacks for me. Did you have any challenges with continuity of any of the makeup? Did you have that to? To deal with where you really had to have the same thing, the same look each time. Is that something that is? Well, I mean, you always took continuity Polaroids. Yeah. <laughs> you Polaroids know. again. <laughs> Let me tell you, the movie business used more Polaroid film than anybody. Every every department was taking pictures, to, you know, the, the script supervisor and the wardrobe people and the makeup people. And you were hearing, yeah. Coming from everywhere. <laughs> All day, every day. Pictures. So much better. So much better. Yeah. Doug, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to sit and, and talk with me about all this stuff. It's very fascinating. I'm glad that we got to talk. Um, I'm glad that we were able to get together on this. Is there anything that you want to talk about, promote, plug, like your memoir, social media sites, anything like that? I mean, I have a Facebook page, uh, but I mean, right now there's no work in Hollywood uh, because of the strikes. Uh, so uh, I'm hoping that legacy happens. Oh God. Yes, please. Uh, legacy was a wonderful experience for me. You know, I mean, I had Terry, Who's an old, old, old friend, you know? I mean, he was with us on Enterprise and Voyager, you know? He was an assistant. Now he runs the show. So, I mean, I would love to, first of all, I can work from home with those guys. Yeah. They do parts of stuff. I think there's a good chance I'm going to be asked back to Orville season four. Good. Very good chance. Good. But they'll want me to come in. And that means going all the way to 20th Century Fox. And, <laughs> you know, uh, I lost my wife, you know, just over a year ago. So, you know, the whole idea of leaving the house and the bird all by himself and we could have an earthquake and I'll be nowhere near him, you know. Right. I mean, I'm no spring chicken anymore. So, I mean, I'm on the verge of retirement. I'm going to do one more show maybe. Yeah. You know? Call it a career. Yeah. And so I've been working on my memoir, which has really been amazing, really great. We're going to have to keep our eyes and ears open for that one. And you said you think you may have it done later this year? I'm going to have it done by the end of the year. By the end yeah. of the year. Yeah, hope so. Well, I mean, then I have to see if anybody's interested to publish it. I mean, Mike Westmore had like 15 rejections before he found someone. And if I don't find someone, I'll just do it myself and put it on Amazon. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. Make it an audio book or something like that. Yeah, it's not going to be a pictorial, the art of. It's not going to be that. Good. Do something different. Yeah, it's going to be about, you know, getting from here to there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long run. <laughs> hey, I love that. <laughs> How many people have ripped to that? It's a good song. It's just, it got too upbeat in season three, which is supposed to be the most tragic and down season ever. Uh, the first time we all watched that title sequence in the art department before the show ever aired, our 
vest buttons were popping off with pride. Uh huh. On Shepard and, you know, connecting the dots with the sailing ships and wow, you know, and, and instead of ripping them for, you know, using that, I mean, it was, a, I think it was originally a Rod Stewart song. They originally had it scored with a U2 song. Yes. But they didn't end up using it. And it worked well. It worked really I, well. I thought it worked fine. I yeah. thought it worked. It's one of those things where you appreciate it more once you're past it and you've got several years uh, in front of it and you can look back and reappreciate it. was the first show that had to contend with the internet. Oh, yeah. You know, I used to work in an ar- architectural supply in Manhattan called Charette. And I used to work at the front counter and it was lots of fun. And, you know, and they saw that I was good with people and stuff like that. So they asked me if I would go on a telephone sales deck. As soon as I went on this telephone sales deck, the same people who were so kind and nice in person were utter jerks and insulting and making ironic comments. And and they'd never do that at the front counter. So what you have, this is what we have on the Internet. People's worst side comes out. And uh, so on Enterprise, I mean, look, when Picard season three came out, I'm sorry we didn't get to see more of the Stargazer, but when they showed the ship, um, people leapt on it with their knives. They were ripping it to shreds, you know. Uh, once they had a great adventure on the ship, they liked the ship. Yeah. But in the beginning, it was like picking on everything. Very everything. fickle. Yeah, very yeah. fickle. <laughs> but, you know, it's like I've tried, I've told Dave Blass, because I think it's the first time he's had to go through this, that that's part, that comes with the territory. Part of enjoying the show is ripping it apart. Yeah, yeah. You know, you like this sound, like, in, you know, puff your pipe professorly and explain how it should have been done. And no one dislikes Star Trek more than the Star Trek fans. Yeah, you know, so you just have to, even if they're ripping it apart, just remember that they're taking their time to rip it apart. Yeah. It's not like they're ignoring it. They're not. They're, you know, with full of energy and fangs and claws. That's a good sign. Putting a lot of effort in their criticism. Yeah. I don't blame them for being pissed off until... If you buy the multiverse angle, then you can accept it. And I think people kind of do. But before that, people were thinking that they're just ignoring everything that I invested time in memorizing and buying books on and, and they're throwing it all out the window. So I don't I understand why some people might be angry. I've invested, you know, so many years of my life in knowing every bit of this. But if it is a multiverse, which I don't think is working out well for Marvel. But um, anyway, I got to go. Thank you so much, Doug. All right. That's the podcast. Appreciate it. Hope we'll get to talk again uh, another time down the line. We are Beyond Trek Podcast. Lower your inhibitions and surrender your years. We will add inspirational and hilarious Trek content to your day. Your attention will adapt to subscribe to us. Resistance is futile. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us at patreon.com slash beyondtrek.